Good morning. I just want to dedicate the class to a woman who just passed away, Gussie Baschava, Chana, and Velvo. The soul should have an aliyah. The soul should be elevated. That's the expression that we say when someone passes away. And today I'd like to first uh, review some of the highlights of the last class. The Hebrew term for kindness or doing acts of kindness is gemilus chasadim or gemilut chasadim, which literally means bestowing kindnesses. And that has two messages. Number one, that the focus is not on kindness, but on bestowing kindness. Action is the most important thing. And number two, it's plural, that you have to express kindness in many different and diverse areas. If you're kind in one area, that's great. No one should ever complain to you that you're too good, you're too kind. But kindness, to make it complete, has to manifest itself in various and diverse areas. And that's a challenge. doesn't mean you're a bad person because you're only kind in one area. It just means that to make kindness complete, it has to be diversified in different areas. And I'd like to just add something that I didn't mention last week. One of the reasons why it's important to diversify, which is not easy, is because in doing kindness, there are two levels. There's one level which is called the comfort zone. You do what you feel comfortable with. And some people enjoy and feel comfortable with doing an act of kindness, whatever it may be. But other areas, they don't feel so comfortable with. So they say, I'm going to specialize in one area. And that's wonderful. We should specialize in the area that we feel most competent and most capable in doing. But when you diversify, what you're showing is that you're going beyond your comfort zone. And what that does to you is it deepens, it goes, it's like digging deeper into your neshama, into your soul to find deeper levels of kindness that you yourself, that we ourselves never knew we possessed. So that's why when you change your personality interests, let's say you, you enjoy doing one type of thing. Some people enjoy visiting the sick and taking care of those who are not well, but they're not so great at, uh, at giving charity or vice versa. Some people like to give big donations, but they're not really into personally visiting people and things like that. They're not a people's person. When you do the other thing, then you are changing your nature and you're developing a relationship with a part of your soul that you never knew that you possessed. That's why it's kindness says, it's diversifying the kindness. And again, don't beat yourself up if you're not that way. It just means that there's a challenge that we can go beyond the level we're on. The importance of kindness we discussed, there were many statements in the literature, but in the, the, the most, I think, powerful one is that the world stands on kindness. The world can't exist without kindness. One of the problems, and I'm adding this, I didn't mention this last week, one of the problems with with communism, there are many problems with communism, one of the most evil ideologies of all of history, but one of the things that makes it evil is, I know this from people who, my family's, my wife's family is from Russia, but I've met many hundreds, if not thousands of Russian Jews, is that they took away the concept of kindness. The government takes care of everything. You don't have to volunteer. You don't have to give your neighbor and help the neighbor because you're, that's an affront to the government. The government takes care of everyone and everything. And it er- eliminates the trait of kindness. If you're not, if, if you're a kind person, but there's no one to be kind to, so you don't really use your kindness, you keep on not using your kindness. You know what will happen? It'll atrophy. If you don't use your right hand, you're right-handed, you don't use your right arm, your right hand, after a while, it'll atrophy. You'll need a lot of physical therapy to get back the strength. You could always regain it. As long as you're alive, you can always regain your kindness. But if, you, if the government takes away your ability to help others, 
Instead of the government being the first resort and then people being the final, last resort, it should be the other way around. Government should be the last resort when people don't do what they're supposed to do. So we're all for government doing things, but it shouldn't take away from the ability of individuals to be kind, to help their neighbor. And the world stands on that kindness. If you take away kindness, you develop a very cold, insensitive world. And that world is not a good world to live in. And eventually it'll collapse, as did the Soviet Union, for many reasons, but that could be one of them. Another thing about kindness is that it's divine. It's not human, it's divine. We get it from God who created the universe, which was the ultimate act of divine kindness. He didn't have to create us, and he created us. And we all possess it. We all have a spark of the divine in us. So we all possess the ability to be kind. I know sometimes you can look at a child that's born and the child is a nasty child, very horrible, terrible traits and everything. And uh, we don't know where it came from. And we then conclude that this child is just evil. No, there's no such thing as an evil child. It's just that for what reasons that we can't understand that kindness is suppressed. And... I told a story of how even people who are very miserly and very unkind, if you give them an opportunity to be kind, if you exercise it, it will express the kindness. It'll dig it up from the core of your being and make it a part of your behavior. We all have kindness, and the way to develop kindness is to exercise it. I'd like to add another story. Once a woman who had a very hard time socializing with people. She was not a likable person, and she was miserable because of that. And she went to different psychologists and different therapists, and nobody could really help her. So she heard that the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, is a very wise man, and he will explain to her what her her personality problem is and how to correct it. And all the Rebbe told her is, the next time you're sitting in a cafeteria, offer to bring some water to the other people at the table. And have a good night. She was very disappointed. This brilliant rabbi, theologian, uh, scholar, all he can tell her is to bring some water. Well, she tried it, and the person said, thank you. And she felt good. Someone thanked her. This is the first time she ever heard someone saying thank you to her for something. And she kept on repeating it until she became a different person. It's a long story. It didn't happen overnight. Kindness must be simultaneously indiscriminate and discriminate. What do I mean by that? You should not just be kind to people that you like. You shouldn't just be kind to someone who you think deserves it. Kindness has to be indiscriminate, but it can't be destructive. You have to discriminate. If if an addict comes to you and says, I want a drug, I need money to buy drugs or alcohol, an alcoholic, you're you're acting kind, I'm giving, I'm sharing. No, that's not kind. You have to use a little seichel, as they say in French. Oh, it's not French? There are three objectives of kindness. There's another point we, we spoke about. The first is, I need to think about the needs of others. What do others need that I could help provide them with? There's a second thing about kindness it brings about your own self-refinement. It makes you a nicer, better person. It's self-enhancing. And the third point, which is related to the second point, is that it brings you a sense of fulfillment. I made a difference. I matter, which is one of the most important feelings that a human being needs to feel legitimate. That I'm, I, There's a reason why I'm here. I, I contributed to to the world. Without me, the world would have been a much less uh, pleasant place to be in. That's more or less a review of what we did last week for those who weren't here and for those who were here to refresh their memory. Now, kindness is something that, as I said, may be natural to some people, but it's not natural to everybody, certainly not the extent of it. So we had to have been told by God in the Torah what we're supposed to do. Why? First of all, that we should be kind. And there are many biblical texts that address the idea of kindness. For example, in Exodus, this is the story where Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, gives him advice about how to run his court system. And there it talks about how you shall caution them, the people, about the statutes and the teachings. 
and you will show them the path to follow. Now, the, the problem with this verse is, once you teach them all the statutes, all the laws and the teachings, what's the path talking about? So the Talmud says, show them the path refers to gemilus chasadim, bestowing kindnesses. So the path, following the laws is not the path. Those are laws that we follow. The path that we go on is the path of kindness. Then, of course, the most famous of the biblical commandments in the Leviticus is love your fellow as yourself. This is a statement in the middle of the book of Leviticus, which we'll go into a little bit more as we go on. But that covers everything, essentially. If you love yourself, then you want yourself to have the things that you need, that you want, so give it to others. If you are hungry, you love yourself, and you want to take care of your hunger, feed others. Whatever you want for yourself, you should do to others and give others. We'll go more into that as we go on. Then there's another verse in Deuteronomy. It says, God, your God, shall you follow. What does it mean to follow God? God is not a physical being. So the Talmud says, is it possible for a human being to follow the divine presence? God is not a physical being. How do you follow something that's not physical? Rather, to follow the attributes of the Holy One, blessed is He. And it goes on to say, just as He clothes the naked, that's the story of Adam and Eve after the forbidden eating of the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge. They realize they were naked and God provides them with clothing. That's how the Torah begins on an act of kindness. And you should do the same thing. You too shall clothe the naked, just like God provides, visits the sick. He visits Abraham after he had circumcised himself. So you should also visit the sick and so on and so forth. We have to emulate God. It's a principle in, in Judaism. There's a, a Latin word for it. Imitatio Dei, I might be mispronouncing it, imitate the divine. That God does certain things, we should imitate him by being godly. And then it says in Deuteronomy, and walk in his ways. Again, the same thing. How do you walk in God's ways? What are his ways? His ways are acts of kindness. So we have to do acts of kindness. <clears throat> then, but the Torah does not say anywhere, I want you to visit the sick. It doesn't say that. There's no explicit commandment to visit the sick, to bury the dead, to comfort the mourners, to take care of a, of a, a bride, help her get married by supporting her, her needs. These are rabbinic legislations. Rabbinic legislation made each example of kindness a separate mitzvah. In other words, if you do an act of kindness, you could say, I fulfilled the mitzvah of love your fellows yourself, or I fulfilled the mitzvah, I went in God's ways. But what about the specific act? Those were ordained by the rabbis. The rabbis in the Torah were given the authority to institute rules that will enhance the laws of the Torah. So one of the set of rules that they made was to give specific commandments pertaining to specific acts of kindness that were not mentioned in the Torah as commands. Yes, the Torah tells us that God visited the sick. It doesn't say clearly that we should visit the sick. It says we should just follow God's ways. And that's a very broad category. But the rabbis were more specific. Now, I, the question that, that I often think of is why couldn't the Torah be more specific? Why does the Torah give us generalities in this area, when in so many other areas of Jewish observance, it's very, very specific, very detailed about many commandments. Yet when it comes to kindness, it leaves it very general. The rabbis had to fill in the gap by making it more specific. So my my feeling is, and this is, uh, it's not, no one has to accept what I'm saying. It's my own personal uh, feeling is that if the Torah would have given us specific commands, then we would have focused on the command, but not on our feelings. They would lack empathy. There are people who are very obedient. If you go back not too long ago in Germany, the people 
were extremely law-abiding. If they were told to do something, they did it because they had respect for authority. Murder Jews, they murdered Jews. That's what can happen to a person who's fixated on following orders. Now, of course, most of the time, of course, if the orders come from God, they're not going to be evil. But when you focus on just the orders, you don't necessarily have the empathy. You know, the story of Noah during the flood, he was told by God to build an ark. And Noah was not, did not go to shipbuilding school. <laughs> we don't have any evidence of that, that there was such a school even. And he was told to personally build the ark. How long did it take him? No, 120 years to build it. It would take me 300 years or more. But he did it in 120 years. Why did God tell him to build an ark? Well, there's going to be a flood. And you have to be saved, so you need to build an ark. You mean there's no other way? If God is God, couldn't he find another way of saving Noah? So the answer is, as Rashi, major commentator, cites this tradition, that God didn't want to bring the flood. God wanted the people to change. So there's one good guy, Noah. So he says to Noah, I want you to take your time. Don't rush. People are going to start asking you, what is an old man like you doing building an ark? And he'll tell them, because God is going to bring a flood. And you have to repent. Stop stop stealing. Stop killing. Stop doing all the terrible things you're doing. Now, Noah was a righteous man, says someone in the Torah. And he had 120 years to preach. How many people did he affect? Zero. Zero. Now, how could that be? If you're a good person and you have 120 years to change the minds of a person, he was a total failure. He was busy building. (laughs) (laughs) Right, but he was building for the purpose of getting people's attention and then talking to them. And it says he did. He did speak to people. He did exactly as he was told. That was the problem. The problem was God says, oh, you want me to tell them? Okay, repent. What else should I tell them? Don't steal. Okay, don't steal. There was no empathy. He was just following divine orders. Now, if it's a mitzvah which is not based on emotions and feelings and you're following orders, that has merit. You're following God's orders. But if the mitzvah is to help someone, the help has to come from within you. It's not enough to say, I'm doing... You know, I'm, I, really don't, I really don't want to help you. I really don't enjoy helping you. I hate helping you. But I'm going to do it anyhow because God told me to do it. Then you're, you're lacking a very important ingredient. Yes? I, I don't I mean to, uh, I know you're going to go on to say it, but that was the major difference between Noah and Abraham because when Abraham, after circumcision and his sore, has the three angels come, he spontaneously doesn't, Right. You know, Very he good. He says, "God, I I can't talk to you right now. I've got to help these people. I want to get them food and so forth." But now that's kindness without being told to be kind. Right. He didn't need the commandment, and even when he was commanded, he did it from his heart. There was there was empathy there. There was feeling. Now, there's an interesting discussion in Maimonides, one of his works. Maimonides was very prolific, and one of his works was called the Eight Chapters which is an introduction to the part of the Talmud called Ethics of the Fathers. And then he says there's a little bit of a controversy and contradiction between philosophers and rabbis, and he reconciles them. What's the difference? He says philosophers maintain that you have two people. They're both good people. One of them doesn't steal because the law says you can't steal. And the other one doesn't steal because he doesn't want to steal. He doesn't want to take something that doesn't belong to him. Who is superior? And the philosophers, the Maimonides quotes, say the one who doesn't want to steal is superior. Or, put it in the positive, one person wants to help others, really desires to help, and one says, I'll help because I'm told to. Who is superior? The one who wants to help. Says the rabbis seem to say the opposite. 
they say, if a person says, you know what, I'm not going to eat a cheeseburger because it says so in the Torah, but I love cheeseburgers. I would love to devour one right now, but the Torah says not to. And then there's another guy who says, I just hate, I despise cheeseburgers. Who is superior? The rabbis say the one who loves cheeseburgers and doesn't eat them because the Torah says so. So isn't there a contradiction here? And Maimonides says, no, there's no contradiction. It depends what kind of commandments we're talking about. If you're talking about social commandments, the, the relationships between one person and another, the person who wants to do good is superior to the one who does it because he has no choice. He's forced to do it. He's compelled by law to do it. He has choice. He cannot follow the law, but he feels compelled because he respects the law, so I'll do it. God, you, don't want, you, you want me to... To be, to be charitable, I'll be charitable. But I really don't feel that way. That person is inferior and has room to improve. Let's put it that way. That person needs to grow in his or her feelings towards the other. When it comes to commandments that are not based on human feelings, there's nothing good or bad about enjoying a certain type of food or not enjoying it. There, the mitzvah is to show that you have respect for a higher authority. So if you just don't like cheeseburgers, I don't like cheeseburgers. I never tasted one, so I couldn't tell you if I'd like it or not. But I don't like cheese. So, But I, 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 the one who loves cheeseburgers and says, I won't eat it, is a much higher level than, than me or anyone like me who says, I don't like cheeseburgers. I wouldn't eat it even if I was commanded to eat Well, maybe I'd force myself if I was commanded to eat it. But thank God I'm not commanded to eat it. <laughs> but there's artificial cheese. I, I, I guess I could try it and see what, how it would work. And as you said, Abraham was the very opposite. When God tells him, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom, they were not nice people. They were no better than the people that Noah had to try to change. He defended them. He prayed for them. He, he, was, he was moved by their destruction, and he wanted to do something to change it. And then, as you said, when he was ailing from circumcision, he couldn't bear the fact that he couldn't entertain guests. And he was sitting outside his tent and saying, where are my guests? I can't, I'm looking to help someone. That was part of his personality. And that's the goal, to develop that type of personality, because we're not all born that way, but we could work on ourselves to develop that. So that goes back to answer the question. So the Torah gives us generalities. The Torah says, love your fellow. From that it flows that you will do good things, you will visit the sick, and so on and so forth. We're not going to give you specific commandments because then you might be focused on the commandment and not on the feeling. So the Torah says, I want you to develop a feeling. I want you to know that when, when you help someone, you're fulfilling a mitzvah of love. You're going in God's ways. It's divine. It's not just something you do because you have to do it. The rabbis who always realized that some people could very easily get away with generalities and forget about the details, they filled in, they supplemented it by saying, you know, let's be specific. Because sometimes when you focus on love, you're so focused on love that you never have a chance to express that love in any concrete way. Some people are live in a world of, of abstraction. You know the story. You know the story, don't you know? This uh, this rabbi was always talking about uh, how a person should be patient and never get angry and always take things in stride, and that was his life's specialty. And one day he was paving his driveway with fresh cement. And some kids start to dance in the cement and mess it up. And he gets livid. He's angry. He shouts. He explodes. And his wife comes out and says, My dear husband, your whole life you're talking about not getting upset. And here you get so upset and angry. He says, That what I said is in the abstract, not when it's in the concrete. <laughs> so we, it's very easy for us to be great in the abstract. We love. We're loving. We're kind. But when it comes to concrete things, we sometimes lose our way. So the rabbis 
we're aware of the fact that the Torah wants us to be loving and kind by nature, but you can't rely on that. So they added the specifics. Do this, do that, go visit the sick, go comfort the mourner, and take out, take, do all these different specific aspects of kindness. Now, kindness is not, not just, uh, something that Jews do, and it's not just something that is based on Judaism. We have secular uh, ideologies that emphasize the importance of kindness. But there's a diff- there are differences between secular and Jewish, and also Judaism and other religions, perhaps. Let's talk more about the secular first. Secular ethics are relativistic. And situational, which means that who determines what kindness is? Society determines what kindness is, just like everything else. There are things, I don't want to go into controversial areas because it'll take us away from the subject, but there are certain types of behaviors that society once considered to be immoral, unethical, illegal. But society changed, and they like to use the term evolved. I would use the word sometimes evolve, sometimes devolve. It goes in both directions. The, the belief that society is evolving is a myth. There's no such thing as evolution when it comes to a human beings. We could evolve, and we can then devolve. 1939, we would have reached the peak of evolution of humans coming to levels of understanding of philosophy, of physics, of of science and medicine, and look what happened between 1939 and 1945. We devolved. And I don't just mean Germany. The whole world, including the United States, including its beloved president, FDR, devolved into a person who cared nothing for six million Jews and went out of his way not to save Jews. So we devolved. There's no truth to evolution, certainly when it comes to to uh, ethics and morality. Sometimes we do develop, we get better, and sometimes we go backwards. So secular ethics is dependent on what a society thinks at that time. If all you have to do is listen to what people said, I don't want to bring proofs from politicians because you never know what they say that what that's sincere and what they're saying because they need the vote. But I'm talking about the general population. Fifty years ago, people felt that certain t- actions were unethical. Today, society says they are ethical and people will fight for them. What changed in fifty years? Nothing changed except for people's needs and interests. And that's what we mean by situational ethics. The situation requires... I'll I'll, I'll give a specific example because I think it helps to understand abortion, for example. I'm not going into whether abortion is acceptable according to Jewish law or it isn't acceptable, but society generally was against abortion for decades, for centuries, for millennia. Although there were always exceptions to that rule. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what the percentage is, let's say 50% of this country is considers themselves to be pro-abortion. And I'm not talking about choice, I'm talking about abortion. So I don't know what the percentage is, but it makes no difference. But there's a significant number of people who are pro-abortion, who think abortion is nothing. As I, I had a student and I taught uh, Jewish medical ethics and I asked a student who was involved with, uh, with uh, one of the organizations that provides for abortions. I said, she told me she would never have an abortion. I said, is your choice not to have an abortion like your choice not to dye your hair green? You know, there's nothing morally wrong with dyeing your hair green, but it's a choice. He says, yes, that's exactly my feeling about abortion. For anyone who wants it, it's like dyeing their hair green. I choose not to. That's why I, don't, I wouldn't have an abortion. As, as a result of that statement, one of my students there said, I was pro-choice, I became pro-life as a result of that statement. But what I'm trying to say is there are people, significant number, who consider abortion to be 
a non, it's, it's, it's not a problem. Yeah, but 50 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. What changed in the 50 years? Yes. Rabbi, a lot of people, what you're, what you're saying now about people's, the attitudes change everything, that a lot of people think that doesn't apply to science, that science is objective and separate from that, but that's not so. Because if you look in the field of science and medical diagnosis, what was considered in psychiatry abnormal 50 years ago is no longer considered, some of the things are no longer considered abnormal, mm-hmm. even though nothing has happened to, n- nothing experimentally or nothing has been shown to it's change. based on attitudes, not but science. It's, it's right, 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 right. That science changes based on attitudes. And sometimes the change attitudes are positive and sometimes they're negative. Mm-hmm. I'm, what I'm just saying is that what changed, I'm using abortion, I don't want to go into the subject itself, but what changed people's attitudes is what? What? The increased need for it. Increase the need for it. Because the young becoming more promiscuous and less responsible for the outcome of their behavior with birth control. So they needed abortion as a way of protecting their life from not having to worry about having unwanted uh, pregnancies. So the the, the, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, not just in technological terms, but in the terms of moral terms. If we need, if I have to have an abortion to protect my future, I have to make... I have to come around with the attitude that abortion is okay because I don't want to feel that I'm doing something immoral. And I, oh yes. I guess like another example would be drinking and driving. That you know, 50 years ago, nobody really cared. People were drinking and driving. Now everybody's drinking and driving. Okay, that's a good example in a positive direction. I think. Obviously, you know that I'm not pro-abortion, so you know that was considered a negative. But that's in a positive direction. People's attitudes change because there are so many people killed in car accidents. If that wouldn't have happened, people would still be drinking and driving. You're 100% right. And it's not always bad that situational things make people change their attitudes. I'm not saying that's inherently bad, but there's no guarantee that it can be good or bad. Take Germany, for example. If you go back few decades before the Holocaust, you ask the majority of Germans, would you ever countenance annihilating all the Jews in the world? That's what Hitler was out to do. I'm sure 95% of them would say no. They would never countenance that. But they were conditioned into believing that killing Jews was a necessity, and they justified it. They didn't think they were doing a horrible thing. They thought they were doing a service to humanity by getting rid of the, the, the Jewish people. So attitudes of people could change almost overnight, which can change their whole view of what's ethical, what's unethical. Same thing with kindness. A certain society considers it kind to, to uh, change a person's uh, lifestyle, and another society says, no, that's terrible, that's evil. You cannot rely on situational ethics because who tells you that your new attitude is an advancement? How do we know that just because the 21st century comes after the 20th century, at least most people count that way, maybe that will change also if attitudes will change. So we're more advanced and we know more, we know more about things and therefore we're better informed to change our attitudes. Are we better informed to change our attitudes? What guarantee is there that that's true? So that's the difference between Jewish ethics. Jewish ethics never changes. Yeah, facts, the needs of people change. That's obvious. We're not going to do the same things we did a few hundred years ago because, the, you know, to get, make sure that a poor person has a horse and buggy because getting a horse and buggy is not going to help them. We give them a car. So circumstances change, but concepts and values cannot ever change because we believe that they are divine. So yes, I want you to be kind because you feel kindness, but it has to be rooted in something that's transcendent, something that's above you. It can't just be rooted in your feelings. Rabbi? Yes? Uh, I want to dispute something. 
Please do. I'm not going to fail you for the course if you disagree with me. Over 2,000 years ago, interpretations of the Chumash, of the Bible, were more supportive of uh, of Gevora, and over time, the rabbis have made it much more of a chesed interpretation. Okay, that's a good that's a good question, a good challenge to what I said. If you go back, it seems that people in the past. I'm just going to rephrase your your question. And the, the rabbis in the past were more into discipline and, and stern. Uh, control over people's lives, and more recently, within within the uh, ortho, so-called orthodox uh, framework, we're more into kindness, love, acceptance, and, t- and tolerance. That is, yes, it's true, but what changed is not the rabbinic interpretations. Society changed, the, that we're no longer the same people we were then. We're much more needy today. And we can't be helped by being as stern and as strict as we used to be. It'll have it'll backfire. The, the goal is the same. The goal, if you have a child, you have two children in your household. One of them requires tough love. The other one requires no tough, just pure love. But they're both, and they they both benefit from opposite approaches. You have to look at the needs of people. Also, within Jewish law, there are differences of opinion. No one's saying that everything is. There's unanimity about everything, but both opinions are there to try to discover what does the Torah say, not what I say, what I how I feel, but what the Torah says. So yes, one opinion will prevail, the other one will be overruled, but at least you're going on the foundation of a higher a higher system, a system that recognizes that there will be different interpretations, but not based on personal feelings or societal needs that change from one society to another. Another thing about secular ethics, although it's not universal, but the Romans, for example, and the Greeks were all into the needs of an individual are to be eliminated in the interest of the community, in the interest of society. We don't care about the individual except to the extent that the individual contributes to the overall society. Judaism was never, of course we focus on the community, that's very important, but never lose sight of the needs of one individual. And even if it will not contribute to the betterment of society at large, we don't just focus on an issue based on societal trends. We have to look at every individual in his or her own right, because every individual, to paraphrase the Talmud, is like a whole universe. Now, it's a little bit more subtle here, the differences between Jewish kindness and other religions. What I'm referring to, and I'm not an expert in other religions, so you could argue with me, but I, even if it's not correct what I'm saying, I think I'm going to show you something about Judaism that may not always be uh, understood. You know, we, we mentioned the commandment, love your fellow as yourself. Okay. Hillel was approached by a would-be convert who says, I want you to teach me the whole Torah standing on one foot. And he went first to Shammai, who was a little tough and rigid, and he threw him out <coughs> for his insulting approach to Judaism. They can teach all of Judaism standing on one foot. Hillel, who was a much more open and tolerant person, (coughs) says to him, I'll teach you the whole Torah on one foot. And what does he tell him? What is hateful to you, don't do to your fellow. That's the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go out and study the rest. What, what, What was he saying, essentially? The same words of Leviticus. Love your fellow as yourself. But he phrased it in the negative. He phrased it in the negative. Why did he phrase it in the negative? Why didn't he just tell him? You know, the Christian version of that is do to others as you would want others do to you. That's more consistent, you would think, with the biblical Verse in Leviticus. Hillel instead changes that 
from the positive to the negative. (coughs) (coughs) Why do you think he changed it to the negative? It could be several reasons. One of them is, if I tell you, love your fellow as yourself, what about someone who hates himself? (laughs) There are people, unfortunately, who don't like themselves. What about someone who's a ascetic? They uh, they eat one. There were rabbis who used to fast every single day except for Shabbos. They would only eat something at night. And here, a hungry person comes to your door and says, "I haven't eaten in three days." He says, "Look, I haven't eaten in six days. Have a nice day." <laughs> I love him as my love myself. I love myself, and because of that, I am not eating because it's good for me and it enhances my spirituality. Whatever the reason may be, I'm on a diet. But you're not on a diet. But should I love you as I love myself? No. That's that's a misinterpretation of that commandment. But it's easy to misinterpret it that way. In fact, one of the Hasidic masters, Rabbi Mendel of Kutsk, once says, what does love your fellow as yourself teach you? You should love yourself. Because if you don't love yourself, you're going to harm the other person. You'll treat them the way you treat yourself. And a lot of people are very harsh on themselves and very and mistreat themselves. So that gives you a license to mistreat others. That's why Hillel had to be very careful. He's talking to someone who doesn't know anything about Judaism. He'll take the words very literally. So he says, what is hateful to you, something that is hateful, something that is destructive to you, don't do to another. It's not just about loving yourself and loving the other. A deeper understanding of Hillel's statement was when someone tells you you have a certain fault, you don't like to hear it. You know you have that fault, but when someone else tells you, you get upset. But you know you have that fault. So why do you get upset? Because there's a certain principle in life, in human psychology, that your self-love covers up covers up your own faults. And it manifests itself several ways. Number one, most of your faults you don't even recognize. If you recognize them, you try to minimize them. Ah, it's no big deal. And thirdly, even if you can't minimize it, it's glaring, you say, in spite of that, I still love myself. That's how you... And you don't like when someone else points them out to you. Because your self-love can cover up your own faults in one way or another. But when someone points it out to you, you can't cover that up. That person is pointing it out to you, is focusing on it. So what is hateful to you means when someone points out your flaws, don't do to others. See the other person the same way. You see someone else has a flaw, the first thing is you don't even notice the flaw. If it's glaring, you say, well, probably that person had a bad day and, uh, you know, you can't blame him for it because the person was not in the right state of mind. You try to minimize it. If you can't minimize it, you say, you know what, I still love the person. I'll try to help them, but I'm not going to judge the person unfavorably. The same way you would do it, we do it to ourselves. No matter who we are, we always do it to ourselves. We either ignore our faults, we don't even know we have them, we minimize them, or we accept ourselves regardless of our faults, that's how we should treat the other. That's really a much deeper thing than what what is what you would want others to do to you, you should do to others. That's a very that's a platitude. Maimonides phrases it almost the same way, but he makes it very clear it means actions. Respect the other person Everything good that you would want others to do, you have to do to others. So the focus is is on the actions, and the focus is not judging the other person unfavorably the way you would not judge yourself unfavorably. Because even the person who says, I don't like myself, that person still doesn't, covers up some of that, some of those faults and justifies their own existence, because that's human nature.
Now, one final thing about the Jewish view of kindness. I mentioned this in the last class. The Talmud says that there are three traits that we have to have as long as we call ourselves Jewish. If someone doesn't have those three traits, there's a question about their Jewish identity. One of them is kindness. One of them is compassion. And the other one is humility. And Maimonides, when he cites this, he cites humility first. The Talmud, when it cites it, it cites compassion and kindness before humility. So the Rebbe gives a very deep analysis of this, and he goes comes to this conclusion. There are two types of compassion and kindness. There's one that comes from our egos, and one that comes from humility. Proper kindness and compassion has to come from humility. It has to come from sensing that our existence depends on someone else. I validate myself when I give to others. Instead of saying, I'm this wealthy person, I have so much money, I have so much knowledge, I have so much of whatever resource it is, and I'm going to lower myself and share it with you, you lowly individual. That's kindness and compassion coming from ego. That's not That's not the right approach. That's not the Jewish idea of compassion and kindness. It cannot come from your ego. It has to come from your humility. You have to recognize that your existence has to be validated by virtue of what you do for others. It has to start with humility. Then the compassion and kindness is a real profound one. It's real. That's the godly form of... Whereas person who comes from his ego and is condescending that's not the Jewish form of kindness. That's a, that's a challenge because obviously a person who's very wealthy, and I mean wealth, not just financial wealth, but any kind of wealth likes to feel superior to the ones who have less. And there are many, many stories of people who are very wealthy but very humble and you would never know that they're that they're in any way different from anyone else. They don't keep themselves aloof and, and above everyone. But the Talmud puts it the other way around. Why? Because let's say you have an ego. How do you break that ego? Through compassion and kindness. So it goes in both directions. No ego, humility leads to compassion and kindness. Kindness and compassion leads to humility. Why? Because ultimately, even the person who's arrogant and says, I'm I'm condescending in the the way they give, but since they're focused on giving, that becomes their whole pattern in life that takes away from their own ego because they're focused on the other. So the Talmud recognized that we're not all perfect and we're not all humble, that we all do have egos, so you have to use action to get rid of that ego. Now let's try to go through the anatomy of kindness. Very often in Jewish texts we find that water is a metaphor for kindness. First day of creation is said to parallel God's attribute of kindness. And what did what existed on the first day? There was already water on the first day of creation. Because God created the heavens. What is the word heaven in Hebrew? Shamayim. What does Shamayim mean? Shamayim. There is water. Or Esh Mayim. Fire and water. So the water is the first day of creation. It's the day of divine kindness. Why is water divine kindness? Well, first of all, you can't live without water. Without looking for for life in other planets, <coughs> other galaxies, the first thing they want to know is there any water? And thank God they found water on Mars. So anyone who wants to sign up for the next semester, we're going to do it on Mars. We want it to be heavenly uh, class. So uh, there's water there. Good news. Water is a symbol of life, of giving life. 
but also water flows downward. And when something flows downward, that symbolizes that something that has is giving to a lower plane where things are lacking. It's a symbol of kindness. Also, water moisture binds. The idea of kindness is where two people are bound together. The real, another aspect of this metaphor of, of water is that water automatically flows downward. It doesn't have to be precipitated by an external force. You don't have to be told. The water doesn't have to be commanded, okay, go down. It goes down naturally. Same thing with kindness. True (coughs) kindness is when it's unsolicited. If someone comes to your door and says, I'm starving, give me some food, then you give them the food. But that's not kindness in its purest form. Kindness in its purest form is the test that Rivka, Rebecca, was given when Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, comes and he says, I have to find a a woman, a girl for my master. I'm going to give a test. The first girl that I ask to bring me water, who offers to also give to my camels, she's the right one. Isn't it kind enough for a young girl to, and this adult man, strong man with many servants with him, and he's asking her to schlep water for him? That was an act of kindness, that she brought him water for, for, for him. That alone was kind. So why would he have to have the test that she had to offer to bring water for the camels as well? Because that was unsolicited. Solicited kindness is limited kindness. Unsolicited kindness is pure kindness. So that's the, the analogy of water, that it doesn't have to be pushed down. It just automatically just goes down. Yes. Doesn't Mem signify water? The letter Mem, yes. Why, why, why is it giving that honor, the Mem? Because the Mem has, is like the word Mayim, but it, Mem is like a square, the final Mem, it's like a mikvah, it's a pool, a reservoir. Mm-hmm. It symbolizes a reservoir of water. Now, it's interesting, I'm going to skip a few points over here. Well, I won't skip it. All emotions are said in the, by the Kabbalists come from chesed. Even discipline, gvura, strength, toughness, hate, fear, every emotion comes from chesed. That sounds very strange. Chesed means kindness, love. Because emotion, by definition, means I have a relationship with the other. If you have no emotion, I guess catatonic, would that be the right uh, word? Okay, someone who has no emotions, that person cannot relate to other people. That's a very sad situation. If you could get angry at someone, previously you had no emotion, that's an improvement. Because that means that you can relate to something outside of yourself. True, in not a, in a, not a nice way, but at least it's... It's a healing process. I, I know of many Holocaust survivors who couldn't emote, who couldn't cry after the Holocaust for years. My my uh, wife's brother's father-in-law was suffered not in the Holocaust, but he was in Russia, and all of his family, many of his family members, died of starvation. He was a young kid, and for a year or two, he couldn't cry. He had no emotions. And one day, an older chassid was taking him to shul on Simchas Torah, and in the middle of the dancing, the most joyous day of the year, he started crying. And this chassid was ecstatic. He was like, and people were looking strange. The kid is crying, and he's, he's overjoyed, because that was the first sense that he had started to heal, that he recognized he could have emotions. Emotions are products of chesed. So chesed is more than just helping a, a, an old lady cross the street, the proverbial old lady crossing the street, but it's also a sign that you have you have a relationship with the other. This, this, the, you're human. You're fully human and fully divine even, or partly divine, because creation is the ultimate act of kindness. God exists without the universe. He didn't have to create the universe. By creation, that means God says, I recognize there's an other. Sometimes God doesn't like us. 
and he causes fires in California or, or earthquakes or other terrible catastrophes. But he's relating to us. There's a relationship there. We don't like that kind of relationship, but it all starts with kindness. If you don't recognize the other, you can't be angry at them either. Sometimes kindness, chesed in Hebrew, is referred to as gedula, God's greatness. The word gedula also comes from the word maturity. It's God's maturity. What do you mean God's maturity? You are mature when you could relate to the other. If you're just focused on yourself as little babies and little children are totally self-absorbed, that's immature because you are into yourself. Your emotions are self-directed. Whereas the adult could direct emotions outside, could find place for another. So that's why the attribute of chesed, kindness, is called the attribute of greatness, of maturity. And I just want to share two stories of the Skulena Rebbe. He was a Hasidic rabbi in Romania. He, said he helped a lot of Holocaust surviving children. He had, I think, a few hundred children who were orphans that he took care of. A very holy and saintly man. I met him. I didn't speak to him, but he came out of Romania and he lived in Crown Heights and I used to see him praying. He used to sit and pray for hours every day. And the story was that in Europe, after the war, he had access to matzah for Passover, handmade matzah. And he would give every person who asked a matzah. And then one man comes to him and says, my father, who was the, another Hasidic Rebbe, the Vizhenitz Rebbe, would like two matzahs. And he says, I'm sorry, but we're only giving everyone one because there's a limited amount and a lot of people who are asking for matzah. And he says, no, but my father insisted that he wants two. Well, he couldn't say no to this very, very great rabbi, so he gives him two. Right before Passover begins, the rabbi, I don't know if the rabbi himself or his son, comes to the Skulena Rebbe and he says, uh, did you leave any matzah for yourself? And very sheepishly, and he says, no. He gave it all away. He says, here, this is one for you. So the two rabbis were both thinking about the other. This one was saying, I will leave nothing for myself because I'm giving everything to everyone. And the other one was thinking about how this rabbi would have one matzah at least left for himself. And there's a contemporary story. There's a man who was in the news. In fact, he was maligned. I'm not going to go into the whole case. Mr. Rabashkin, who was... uh, he used to be a very wealthy man who owned a large meat company. He was given a 27-year sentence. And people don't know who he is because he's one of the most kind people that ever lived. I would, I would put him in a, in a league of amongst the biblical people. But this is one story that illustrates this man. Uh, he was once in the synagogue. He was very wealthy, not a billionaire, but very wealthy. And a young man who he never met before, someone who was new to Judaism, and was getting married. And he was going around asking people for help so he couldn't afford to have a wedding. He had no family. I guess his family was not interested in helping. So he goes over to Mr. Rabashkin. They never met each other before. And he says, I'm getting married in a week or two weeks, whatever it was. And he says, I need, could you give me some help? So he takes out a wad of $100 bills, talking probably about a whole wad of thousands of dollars, he peels off $100 bill, puts it in his pocket, and gives him the rest. Never met this person before in his life. And the guy was, like, shocked. He was so overwhelmed that he didn't, he didn't thank him profusely, as, the, as normally a person would. The next day, he feels very guilty. I really didn't thank him. Maybe he said thank you under his breath. But, so he goes over to him, and he says, I, I, I'm sorry, but... And before he has a time to finish his sentence that I want to say thank you, he says, oh, you mean I didn't give you the other hundred dollars? He takes out that other hundred that he kept for himself and he gave it to him. This is the type of, and this is not just one story, this is a typical story of this man, that we find people who, who are just, who personify kindness. And he's, and he's known for this. 
and his whole family is known for that as well. His father, his parents own a restaurant. I don't think they don't think they still own it. His father was in his nineties, uh, but he owned a restaurant in Brooklyn. And anyone who came in there, he wouldn't allow you to pay the full price. If you were poor, he gave you the food for nothing. If you weren't poor, you paid three, four dollars for a lavish meal. And they said that's enough. And he wouldn't. And he wouldn't. And if someone would give him more, he would run after the person and give it back to them. This is the type of family we're talking about. So anyhow, kindness still exists. Thank God. Okay, everyone is invited to stay for the brunch. No, no, no. Uh, President Trump commuted his sentence about a, about a year ago. It's close to a year ago, I think. He spent eight years in prison. Why was he in prison, sir? Well, he owned that, that company. It's a long story. He owned that big company. It was the, the largest kosher meat company in the country, maybe in the world. And he, he uh, did something to the bank. He, he needed loans, and he, he gave the, an increased value to his company. So we got more money from the bank, and he was paying them off. And the government made sure to shut him down that he shouldn't be able to pay the loans. And that he defaulted, I think, on $28 million. And the judge, the anti-Semitic judge, gave him 27 years for a crime that other people in the same situation get a slap on the wrist or a year. That was the maximum. And he got 28 years. And it was caused by the government. It was, it was, it was such... <clears throat> the judge herself was was cooperating with the prosecution and planning this whole thing for months. It's it's a long story, but anyhow, it uh, doesn't justify what he did. I'm not justifying it, but people should know that he isn't a common criminal. <laughs> He's a man who's that he he. Because what did he do with the money that he made? He gave it away. He was a, was one of the most charitable people. <coughs> he himself did not live a lavish lifestyle. Which he was entitled to, but he didn't. 